Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a great show for you today. I'm here with Roger Horowitz, Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, to discuss his new book, Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food, published this year. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a great show for you today. I'm here with Roger Horowitz, Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, to discuss his new book, Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food, published this year, 2016, by Columbia University Press. Roger, welcome. Welcome to you, Shira. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's get right to the interview. Okay. While your book really sits, I would say, at the intersection of ancient Jewish law and modern food technology, your project also seems to be an equally personal one. And I'm wondering how your family history really infused your project. Well, the first chapter in the book is called Uncle Stu's Question. And that's because that's how the book started, with a question from my Uncle Stu. Um, Now, what you've learned in the course of the book is that Uncle Stu was, was special to me because he's the one who introduced my parents and he always came to my mother's parties. We got to know him over the years and his wife had a serious illness, Parkinson's disease for many, many years. And he brought her in an extraordinarily selfless way for many years. So we, we looked up to him. So, you know, one day in December, cold, rainy day, awful day, in December, in New York city, I gave him a copy of my, the book that I just published my last book called putting meat on the American table. He was ill at the time, takes it home, he reads it, calls my mother up, and he says, so, what about kosher meat? Is Roger going to write about that? And he says to her, well, have Roger call me. Well, I didn't call him right away, and he died. He passed away in the next few days. Never had the conversation with him, um, which is tough. You know, I can't, uh, you can't go back when, someone, when that happens. But his question stuck in my mind, a very powerful question. Because it raised a couple things. One is he was saying, you know, in a way that uncles will say to, to their younger their nephews, what about it? You know, you know something about the food industry. Are you going to able to talk about this? And shouldn't you? Because you were, after all, you were brought up in a kosher Jewish household. Should this be something that you think about? And I thought that was right. I thought it was right. But then I also, you know, I am a historian. And I thought, well, that's a very interesting question. We write about the modern food industry as if there's no religion as if there's no Jews in the food industry, we being food historians. And what about reinserting Judaism and religion into the food system? What do we get when that happens? So that's how the book started out. But then I started talking to my parents. They, of course, grew up in a kosher households. They had plenty of stories with their parents. So that starts a conversation going. My mother lives in New York City. I always go see her if I go do research there. But they get a little bit older, of course, this book, and halfway through the book, they pass away. 
very, very hard moment because they were living in different parts of the country. And it's a difficult thing to go through. They, they then asked me to um, administer their states, which took a lot of time out of the middle of the book. But as they're getting sick, more stories, more stories come out. So some of the stories that I relate in the book, I describe the moment where I had them, which sometimes were not pretty moments where, you know, when your parents are ill, they're getting on, you know where that's going, and they feel that their child is slipping away from them, that they're not going to see the end of the project. So there was a, there was a, a holding on to their son in, in talking to me about, uh, about these stories. And I'll just say one of the tougher things about finishing the book is I can't send the copies. And I, you know, I kind of wish I could. Certainly understandable. And you really, um, I think really throughout every chapter, bring in a family episode, a holiday meal as a way to frame some of these really important issues about kashrut or kosher dietary laws and how they became mainstream or some of the limits of that. And I'm wondering for those of our audience who don't know a lot about kosher dietary laws, if you can maybe give a brief explanation about what kashrut is. Well, the simplest way of explaining it is that kashrut is about separation. It's about separating the foods that are out in the world today into those you can eat and those you can't if you are observant in the Jewish traditions. That, of course, means there's some foods that are simply unacceptable uh, for consumption, such as you know pigs and pork products. Sometimes it means you can't eat certain foods at the same time, such as you can't eat milk and meat at, at the same meal. Um, then there are more complicated rules about maintaining the separation in plates and cooking utensils to follow through on this whole process. Then you have the problem of new products. How do you understand the new products that come along and how can you use really legal analogies from the past to understand the present? So it's a system which in its core is very simple, but to apply it in the real world is very complex. And it's a very detailed, sophisticated system. It goes back certainly, you know, in some respects to the Torah, but certainly in a a fully articulated sense to the Talmud. Talmud itself is five million words. There are thousands of tens of thousands of rabbinical commentaries out there. So when you start trying to figure the system out, it's pretty complicated. And to give an instance of how complicated this is, um, both regarding the rules and also, as you mentioned, new procedures and new products, I'm wondering if you can, as your title suggests, talk to us a little bit about how Coca-Cola became kosher. Um, as someone who grew up with the standard narrative of Coca-Cola always being a kosher product or becoming kosher at an early time, you actually say it was not such an open and shut case. So how did Coke become kosher, and what does this tell us about emerging issues within the modern food industry? Well, the context for this is branded products, mass-produced products, really hit the marketplace in the 19-teens, the 1920s. And they start landing in stores that Jews frequent, and they try to figure out what to do with them. I mean, Coke is one of the great examples of this product. It's all over American culture in the 1920s. Uh, lots of Jews are drinking it. And, and a culture, a custom develops that it was given to children on Passover as part of that, that occasion. So that's, so then rabbis have to figure out what to do with this. I mean, look, you know, Coke's not talked about in the Talmud. You know, it's not, you know, it's not there. So how do you deduce what, what goes on? So what happens is a discussion amongside, among rabbis as to how to understand uh, what's in Coca-Cola. 
Uh, the person who certifies it, and I stress this in the book, is a, a rabbi named Rabbi Tobias Geffen. Uh, he's in Atlanta. That's where the Coke syrup is made. And under the, the European tradition, you went to the rabbi in the town where the product was made to have a determination if it was, if it was kosher. Uh, Geffen uh, looks into it. He discovers there's an ingredient in Coke called glycerin. And he has to try to figure out what glycerin is. And again, glycerin is not in the Talmud. How do you understand this product? Um, he learns that glycerin is a product of essentially soap manufacturing. It's a byproduct. And it's derived from animal fats. That is to say, whatever is left over in the packing house ends up turned into soap. And what's left over is turned into glycerin, which means it's not derived from kosher animals. So he says, no, glycerin is not kosher. Coke has glycerin. Therefore, it's not kosher. He also learns that Coke uses alcohol in its processing methods, not in the drink itself, but in its processing methods. And that alcohol is derived from grain sources, which means it's not acceptable for Passover. So this, in a way, becomes a test case for the food industry. Do they care enough about Jewish consumers to make accommodations for this? Now, what complicates this is that when Geffen starts looking into this, suddenly another rabbi certifies Coke without asking any changes. And uh, this rabbi, uh, Rabbi um, Aaron Pardes, a very prominent rabbi, uh, in uh, rabbinical circles in, in the United States. Um, and Geffen knows that glycerin's in, in the Coca-Cola. He knows that alcohol is in it. So he starts essentially a private letter-writing campaign with rabbis to undo the certification of parties and to raise questions about it. All secret, all behind the scenes. He doesn't want to cause a controversy. And then he goes to Coke, and, and I, I don't have the evidence for this, but I think he explains there's a problem with the certification. So Coke goes along with Geffen. Coke agrees to find another source of alcohol that's, that, that's not hummets, and, um, and he, you know, he's able to do, create that out of molasses, and they find a vegetable source of glycerin. So his Coke is able to become kosher. And Geffen then, does, I think, deserves the credit for this. And this is 1935. This is the first major American product to go kosher. So that's the, the core of the issue. Then you ask about what the controversy remains. Well, Geffen was an individual rabbi who certified this. And at the same time, certification organizations are forming, such as the Orthodox Union. And the Orthodox Union will only include as a recommended product, products that its rabbis have endorsed. So they do not list Coke as one of their certified products. And so that doesn't happen until the 1990s that the Orthodox Union accepts Coke officially as, as, as kosher. I mean, they don't oppose Geffen, they don't oppose that, but it's not on the list. But another controversy develops in the late 50s, and this is after uh, Geffen is no longer involved in certification of Coke. Uh, they discover that the glycerin that is being used for Coke is running through the same pipes as glycerin that's derived from animal fats. Now, this is a very important issue in kosher law. This is about the separation that I mentioned before. If you have, an analogy to use at the time, that if you have a frying pan and it's used to cook bacon and then it's not cleaned properly and you put kosher burger meat on there, that burger is not kosher because it's been affected by the taste of the bacon. 
So the analogy was that what's happening in this glycerin, it was affected by the taste of the glycerin going through it that was not kosher. The kosher was contented by the, by the non-kosher. Now, this is happening in a Procter & Gamble factory. You can imagine the engineers being completely mystified because vegetable glycerin, meat-based glycerin, it's exactly the same chemical. No difference whatsoever in how it functions in the chemical composition. You can't tell the difference if you're a scientist looking at it. So, but there's a huge uproar in the Jewish community, and Coke says, okay, okay, we'll make the change. And so they, they create a separate piping system in the Procter & Gamble plant. They segregate the kosher glycerin from the non-kosher glycerin, and that controversy is settled. Um, to me, this is amazing, and it's, and it's significant, the impact on food manufacturing. It's also very important for food manufacturers to start understanding Jewish law. They have to deal with a Jewish law that is alien to them. It may seem odd to them, but they learn to work with it. And they also learn that they can trust the rabbis with the secrets of their products. Rabbi Geffen learns Coke's famous secret ingredient. He has to know everything which is in there to certify it. Never tells us so. These manufacturers go, oh, okay, the rabbis want to know what these, what, what's in our you know, products, and they'll keep our secrets. We can trust them to not share this with competitors or with the general public. So I kind of, watch my Coke is first to the book. It, it, it's both the first product, but establishes a set of rules and practices and a comfort zone that really begins the process of kosher certification. And something that you noted um, just now about how the food industry really became aware of and started to accommodate Jewish law, something else that you really mentioned in your book is how rabbis and authorities about kosher dietary standards also had to become much better versed in science. And in that, you really um, focus on the figure of Abraham Goldstein, um, a lay chemist who became a main authority on kosher standards. And I'm wondering why you call him, quote unquote, the invisible chemist and why it's important to know about him when thinking about contests over kosher authority in America. Well, Shira, you know, historians like to give credit where credit's due. And the more I read about Abraham Goldstein's activities, I got kind of angry at how he had literally been cut out of the official history of kosher certification. Um, I mean, he is a chemist, a uh, very serious man, formidable uh, person. He's active on kosher issues back in the 19-teens. He's involved in uh, prosecutions of uh, illicit uh, kosher meat purveyors in the 1920s. He's the table when first when the OU was created. He's the head of the Orthodox Union's Kashrut Committee in the 1920s. He's a scientist. And in the 30s, he gets into this real conflict with the rabbis who don't want to accept science as central to understanding modern products. He particularly clashes with this main this rabbi I mentioned before, Aaron Pardes, about, about particular foods. And Goldstein, you can almost hear him banging his head on the table going, but you've got to understand how these are made. You need to understand food manufacturing. You need to understand chemistry so you can understand the ingredients that are in modern food. It's not like 19th century food. It's a different process. Um, and he really is, is um, he's attacked. Uh, there is a, uh, a rabbinical court that uh, d- declares that he's unreliable in matters of uh, kashrut, which is absurd. 
they try to um, they don't try to suppress his magazine, but they but they they denounce his magazine. They tell Jews not to pay attention to it. They tell food manufacturers to not advertise in it. Uh, this is the kosher food guy. And um, then in the 1950s, all his opinions are then endorsed by the Orthodox establishment. And his opinions about the rules about what should be kosher, what should not be kosher, how kosher certification organizations should operate, how you have to be careful in manufacturing over the transfers of taste. All that is integral to the way kosher certification is done today. Now, science is absolutely central to the way the Orthodox Union and other people do their business. The, the head of the uh, Star K uh, kosher certification agency right now um, this is a man who has a PhD in biochemistry, as well as being a, 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 a rabbi. So you have all these thought. So he, Goldstein is the person who puts science on the table and says you need to have secular knowledge to understand the foods today. And I, I think he, he is successful. I think he wins on that, on that point. And yet, because of the conflicts he had with the rabbis and this issue of a layman telling the rabbis what to do, he really uh, is treated very poorly. He dies in 1944, unrecognized for his efforts. His son, George Goldstein, continues on his agency uh, for some time. Um, I found out a lot about him by contacting his um, great-grandson and talking to his grandson about it. The family remains very active in kosher certification circles. And I, I think he, you know, more credit is due him for what he did. You know, I have to say, one of the things that I found most interesting about Goldstein's efforts um, were the back and forth he had with the readers of the Kosher Food Guide. And I wanted to ask if um, many or most of the letter writers asking for Goldstein's um, authority in matters of Kashrut, were they women? And what does this exchange between Goldstein and his readers tell us about gender and kosher food preparation and authority in America during this time? Oh, it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, the he accepted letters, and what you have in the journal are his answers back to the letters, not so much the letters. But he quotes the letters sometimes and refers to their questions. And there's there's dozens and dozens and dozens of letters, you know, over the course of 10 years. It's a goldmine for understanding the worries of consumers. Overwhelmingly women, not exclusively, but overwhelmingly women all over the United States and Canada. And they're worried about mainstream consumer products, ice cream. Jello, um, you know, breakfast cereals. These are products they're seeing in the A and P chain stores. They're they're seeing them in stores, and they want to know if they are if they are kosher. Uh, this tells you something very important that there was no information out there about what was kosher. It was entirely on the women who were doing the buying. In some cases, the men to make sure that the house was kosher, if indeed they were they were being observant. That's the core of it. They're trying to read labels on packages. That's a big issue. Labeling gets a little better in 1938, but it's not like what we have today. And so they're trying to understand how to do this. So the rabbinical establishment is weak. That's a key thing I, I got from this. They are not out there. They are not – the congregational rabbis don't have the knowledge of the science to advise on some of these products. And these women are trying to make some decisions, and they're looking for information. And, and I think Goldstein's attractive in part because he, he was open. He was, he was not a rabbi. He was willing to hear these opinions. And he also was a scientist. And I think science had an authority that they were interested in, in drawing in so that they could make decisions they felt were proper for their families. And you note that 
this exchange, these debates between Goldstein, between members, um, rabbis of the Orthodox Union, escalates. And one of the ways you say that we can really understand the level of controversy and contention is through the product of Jell-O. Oh, Jell-O. Um, you know, Jell-O, is, I call it, and I think I'm right, the most controversial product of the mid-20th century among, uh, among Jews. Uh, and it goes back to how do you understand ingredients? And the ingredient in Jell-O is gelatin. And, you know, gelatin comes from bones and hides of animals. Do, do those animals have to be kosher for the gelatin to be kosher? That was the issue. And a large proportion of the Orthodox establishment in the 1930s, 40s, into the early 50s said no. That under kosher law, and they have precedence for this, when a product undergoes a chemical transformation, that's the word, chemical transformation, it loses the prohibitions on it. And therefore, it's something new. It's not something which is rooted in the products of which it came. This is huge for food manufacturing, because if that's the case, then all sorts of things are admissible under kosher law, because everything has changed. The colors, the flavors, the spice, so much of that, that has changed. So this is a subject which which... Goldstein is deeply involved in. Um, it actually, I mean, uh, Rabbi Geffen does not get involved in this controversy. He's focusing on his congregation in Atlanta that had other needs. But his rulings on glycerin were at odds with his view that a product could be transformed uh, from its source. So in 1950, Jell-O is, is declared kosher by leaders of the Union of Orthodox Rabbis. And this is a hullabaloo in the Jewish community. It's then reversed. It's, there's a back and forth on it. And finally, in the 1960s, early 60s, the Orthodox say firmly that Jell-O is not kosher. Um, the conservative Judaism disagrees. And part of the story I tell in this is that I made Jell-O at home with my, with my mother. You know, that was, and that was a mark of being a conservative faction of Judaism was that we ate Jell-O. So Jell-O becomes a defining point for your views about, about being kosher, whether you're orthodox or conservative. And my home, I should be said, my mother thought was kosher. We had separate plates and the whole, the whole, whole business. But to us, Jell-O was kosher. But to the orthodox, it was not. Now, let me ask you about another product that you talk about at your book, um, Manischewitz, especially Manischewitz wine. And you say that um, Manischewitz really became the first crossover product from a primarily kosher beverage for holiday consumption to a drink for mostly non-Jewish consumers? Yes. By the early 50s, about 80% of Manischewitz consumers are not Jews. They're overwhelmingly African-Americans. And uh, this makes Manischewitz a huge product in the 1950s. It's all over the newspapers. It's all over television and radio. Uh, the company that makes it, it should be said, is the Monarch Wine Company, making it under license for Manischewitz. But it's not Manischewitz that makes it. It's the Monarch Wine Company. And they readily they see the opportunity. They hire, at one point, Sammy Davis Jr. as their spokesperson. And uh, if you're... Listeners want to have some fun, go into YouTube, put in Sammy Davis, Manischewitz, and you'll see a pretty wild advertisement by Sammy Davis for Manischewitz wine. Um, and so, it, so it, it's very important as a kosher product. Part of what I got into it, though, is that I was, I was interested in, in kosher wine, and I discovered that Manischewitz 
was the most successful kosher wine. Today's kosher wines are not as successful in the marketplace as Manischewitz. And I became interested into why the Manischewitz story had been forgotten or, or sort of covered over. So part of the, the chapter is not just this is what happened to Manischewitz, but isn't this kind of amazing that once upon a time we had this wonderful crossover product. Now the, the, the kosher wines we have today that, frankly, I like to drink better, you know, I like, you know, like many of the people listening, uh, the kosher wines are largely just consumed by Jews. They don't have the kind of crossover appeal that Manischewitz did in, say, those nice dry kosher wines. And something else that seems um, to not have as much crossover appeal or that became, let's say, a harder sell in the post-war period is um, kosher meat returning to your uncle's stew. And what accounts for some of the dilemmas um, kosher wholesalers and kosher butchers encountered in the post-war decades and what became of kosher meat? Well, Shira, I spent two chapters on this. So I don't want to, I could go on and on and on about this, but the, <laughs> but the, 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 the statistics basically is useful to, to have these numbers back in the 1920s, about 25% of, of the meat produced in America was kosher slaughtered. Uh, now it's about 1%. So that is decline by any measure of the market. It's a decline. Uh, the major meat packing companies up until the 1970s uh, all had kosher meat production as part of their activities. Now, the only people who make kosher meat are really those dedicated Jewish firms uh, that, that are doing it. Um, a lot of this has to do with the nature of our meat industry today that is you know, huge and fast and uh, demands tremendously tight margins. And uh, kosher slaughter is too slow for that meat industry. That's the show. We, 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 Expect certain levels of inspection. There's a certain time involved in what the shock it does, just too slow for the meat industry. And so they don't see the point of having it uh, in there. Uh, there's also the Orthodox have gone to a higher standard, the glot standard, that makes it even worse because the glot meat is more meat slaughtered. If it's inspected, if it's slaughtered by, by under kosher law, it's inspected, it's, it's more likely to fail the test of being glott, which is about smoothness of its lungs. So the meat industry is just not interested. They just don't care. And, and once upon a time, it was a huge business, you know, for, you know, for the meat industry. So you, you, I mean, there's a lot that happens between these two points in time, but that's kind of the short of it. And I, I view this as, as troubling that some, in some cases, kosher products can become integrated into the food system, but meat is one of the quintessential kosher products, and its uh, availability in America is tenuous because there simply aren't that many companies that are, in fact, engaged in kosher meat production. And on one side, you have the economics of it, as you've described, but you also raise um, some issues about the ethics of kosher slaughtering and some of the unlikely allies that came to the cause. Well, kosher, yeah, well, kosher slaughter... Um, has always been questioned by animal rights activists because under the kosher law, the animal has to be conscious at the moment that its veins are cut. Uh, that rule comes from making sure the animal is healthy and not unconscious. And given what we know about the meat industry today, there's some reasons that that might, might make a lot of sense. But it's always been kind of a concern for, for humane slaughter advocates, that, that issue. Um, and there's been a lot of efforts to control slaughter in humane methods, and some of those involve restricting access to kosher slaughter. These days in Europe, a lot of that involves 
eliminating, prohibiting kosher slaughter, which in my mind is just on its face anti-Semitic. Here it's different, and here it's different because of a woman named Temple Grandin that a lot of people may know of as the autistic woman who's been so important on, on animal issues. She takes an intense interest in kosher slaughter in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and to this day. Um, she believes that kosher slaughter, if done properly, is the most humane method of slaughtering animals, and she has participated in, in these ourselves. Uh, she thinks that way because it's slower, and because the shocket is a trained person, a religious performing under or under close inspection by rabbis, and that mitigates against the tendency of animals to be abused in the course of the slaughtering process. At the same time, she was critical of some kosher methods, and so she works throughout the 90s with the Orthodox Union um, to improve the methods of kosher slaughter throughout these plants. And, and it's, a, it's amazing. I mean, the Orthodox Union trusts her. She, she wins them to their side that she cares about kosher slaughter, and they work together to really improve the methods that are used in, in, in kosher slaughter to a, to, to a great degree. The problem remains, though, that these methods result in slower production of meat than the big meat packing companies would like, and that still creates the, 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 the dilemma. Uh, what goes on, it's going on now, is efforts to link kosher slaughter with a widespread consumer interest in organic meat, humanely cared for meat, because the smaller slaughterhouses that are interested in organic meat or other kinds of carefully uh, raised animals operate at a speed which is compatible with uh, kosher requirements. And I'm, I'm wondering if in the future that's going to become more commonplace, that kosher meat makes a bit of a comeback not out in the mainstream meatpacking industry, but more in the kind of emerging niche industries of uh, specialized meat production. Something for us to think about. We're almost out of time, but I did want to ask you, um, are you thinking already about a next project? And if so, is it related to food? Well, uh, that's a scary question. I'm not done with this one yet. I have, I have many talks to give and all that. Um, well, I'm th- one thing I do think about since you, since you prod me on that, is that when my family came to America uh, from Romania, my uh, great-grandfather opened a, uh, a little little store, uh, Schwartz Cheap Groceries. Schwartz is my, my mother's side, on the Lower East Side, 169 Delancey Street. And my picture of the store in, in 1894. And I, it makes it's maybe interested in this world of, of retail and the way that retail is a way for Jews moving to America uh, to move into the economy. Uh, as business owners. So I, I, I'm thinking about that. I'm not ready to uh, to go there in that direction, but the thought has occurred to me. And I like the connection. I like having family being so central to historical narrative. Excellent. Roger, thanks again for being on the show. Everyone, please check out Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food by Roger Horowitz, published this year, 2016, by Columbia University Press. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 